we're getting near to the end of the book of James, and we've been um, going through and really looking at this, this big message of James, which is that true faith produces works of love. And really, you know, to be honest, it's, that's what James is saying, but what James is, is, is kind of implying is that it's not faith is working magically to produce works. It's our true faith in Jesus Christ means that we've been, we've been changed in such a way and we've been changed by God. It's ultimately God that's doing the work through us, through the work of his spirit in our lives. Ultimately, that's what's happening. But from our perspective, it begins with true faith. And so simultaneously, true faith produces good works and the good works of love they're what help us know that we have true faith. You, you don't have true faith just because you say, I believe all the right things. And remember, we talked about this too, that it's not about having faith and works. That's not enough. It's not enough to believe the right things and do the right things. That's not Christianity. But it is faith, and from that faith, we've been changed in such a way that it produces works of love in our lives. And a lot of people, a lot of Christians, sadly, have accepted a lesser definition of Christianity. They've either thought it just means right beliefs, or they think it means right actions, or they think it means right beliefs and right actions. It's none of those. It's true faith. True faith produces works of love and these works of love are only possible because we can love the way God loves. And that's because when we have true faith, we're made new. We're given his, his spirit and we can, we can love that way. Well, I hope you guys, well, I know you guys. You, you guys heard Proverbs today, which Wayne, Wayne read for us. And I, uh, I hope you know what that was about. Now, if you've been following along with the scripture readings from the past three weeks, you'll, you would easily figure it out, but it's actually talking about wisdom and that all of those things it said about how you know, he, he had been there with God from the beginning, the formation of the world, etc. It's talking about wisdom. And we know that wisdom, one of the things that, that we saw in James, that if we want wisdom, Right? We, we talked about this. If we want wisdom, it's not just you pray for it and you get it. No. If you want wisdom, you not only have to have faith, you have to have a faith that has been lived in such a way that it is tested. If your faith has never been tested, you can still have faith, but you're not going to have wisdom. Wisdom comes from this steadfast prayer and steadfastness can only come when our faith is tested. And we, we talked about how if, if we don't have this wisdom, and it doesn't mean that every single one of us has to have the same amount of wisdom, but if we don't have this wisdom that comes from a tested faith that's present in our, in our church, and especially among people who are teachers and leaders, then it can cause division. But if you have that wisdom, then it creates this, this atmosphere of peace, true peace, 
And from that peace, there is a harvest of righteousness. In other words, through that peace, more and more people are, underst- are, are understanding and experiencing a right relationship with God. It's, it's a formula, almost like. But it's not a formula like we just do all these things because it all begins with true faith. Not simply faith in what is true, but true faith. Well, he's going to talk here about another problem. Another problem that that has come up in the church. And... um, it results when you don't have wisdom in your church. You don't have true faith in your church. These, this problem will crop up. In fact, there's a couple of problems. And when you, when you read it, at first you're going to think like, well, um, this obviously I can take a week off this week because, you know, it says something about being rich. And, you know, I'm not rich. So, whew, I guess I'll just sit back. Um, That would be a mistake because he's not just talking to the rich. He's not just talking to the wealthy. He's talking to us all and he's talking about our attitudes towards wealth and our attitudes towards possessions and he's also talking about our attitudes towards ourselves and ultimately our attitude toward God. So I, I thought about, though, the idea of wealthy and, and, you know, I have the secret to becoming a billionaire. Um, it's uh, make a billion dollars and then you'll be a billionaire. No, Th- this is a list of, of, you know, character traits that billionaires have. They have drive, you know, they, they're motivated. They're willing to take risks. They work hard. They admit when they're wrong and they redirect. They adapt, they're flexible, and they delegate. Now, you might look at all of that and you might go like, well, you know, what's underlying all of that? And what's underlying that is, is this belief in yourself that, you know, you take risks because you believe that, you know, you can overcome the risk. You have drive because you believe you can be successful, you, you know, you work hard and you, you know, redirect, you, you can delegate because, you know, you can, you believe in your, in your plan. And so if we were to, to look at that, we go like, if, if you think about it, Jesus had said how difficult it is for rich people to really have true faith. He, he talked about how it's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And he was talking, but most people think he was talking about this very narrow gate in the walls of Jerusalem. That it would have been very difficult for a rich man with all his possessions to go through. And it wasn't the only time. You know, there are there other places where, where the Bible talks about how, how difficult it is. And if you think about it, and this is what James is going to write about. If you think about it, it kind of makes sense. Because people tend to think it's because they're greedy. 
You know, they, they think like, oh, this is talking about greed. And if you don't overcome greed, then you can't follow Christ. And it's like, no, that's not really a, what's at issue. Why would, why would Jesus just be pointing out one particular sin? And why would he place it above any, any other sin? That's not really Jesus's way. In fact, James had earlier said, you know, if you break one of the laws, it's like you broke them all. So why would he be elevating one? It's really not just about greed. But if you look at what it takes to be a billionaire and you're actually successful, then it's only natural that you would start to believe in yourself and you would start to trust in yourself and you would start to assume that you, since you were successful yesterday, you're gonna be successful tomorrow. Even if you go through a downtime, you still believe in yourself enough to know that it's just a matter of time before I'm back on top. And so we, we, we can see how that can easily lead to self, to trusting in yourself. And of course, that's the fundamental problem. The fundamental problem is, is not greed. The fundamental problem is not wanting material things. The fundamental problem is trusting in yourself instead of trusting in God. And so this becomes problematic because when you trust in yourself, you're not just trusting in yourself, and James is going to unpack all of this for us. You're not just trusting in yourself. You're trusting in what you assume to be true. And so you, you know, you, you, you get your mind, um, you know, where you just think like, this is how it's going to be. And this, since this is how it's going to be, I know how to deal with that situation. And so you make your plan. And so we, it's, a, it's, it's trusting in ourselves over trusting in God, and it's really not understanding some things about our world. And, you know, you have up there already, like, you know, the, what I always try to talk about, how our world thinks about things. And our world talks about, you know, tomorrow. It talks about planning for tomorrow. But our world increasingly lives for today. We live more and more in the moment. And we assume that the moment's going to be there. And we, we get in our heads like, you know, we'll talk about tomorrow, we'll talk about long-range planning, we'll talk about things like that. But really we're living for today and we're forgetting a third thing. And the world in, in general forgets the third thing, and the third thing is the eternal. So even if people in the world can think long-term, very few of them think eternally. Everything changes when we realize we cannot just think short-term, we cannot just think long-term, we also have to think eternal. So here's James. He's teaching these first-generation Christians. 
And as we've already talked about, he's trying to help them understand the connection between actions of love, works of love, and true faith. And he's talked about, you know, the division that comes with being wise. And so here's this other sign in. And ultimately the question is, who do you trust? Who do you trust? So he says in verse 13, chapter 4, Come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. First of all, understand what James is not saying. He is not saying it's wrong to plan. He's not saying it's wrong to make a profit. He's not saying that at all. It's really not the point. He's just using that as an example. He's saying, you don't know what tomorrow will bring, do you? He's saying, you are just like a mist. Appears for a little while and then vanishes. See, he's telling them that the faithful don't rely solely on their abilities. The faithful have abilities. The faithful need abilities. I don't want people to say like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm just nothing. I'm useless. I'm weak. I'm just going to lie here on the pew until God uses me. No. The Bible tells us God gives us gifts, gives us talents. He wants us to bring you know, these, you know, what we have to him so that he can multiply them, use them in a, in a greater way. So no, that's not the problem. He's saying it's, it's okay to have abilities, it's okay to plan, but you shouldn't assume certain things. And one of the most important things you shouldn't assume is that your plan is God's plan. That's one of the problems we often have in church. It's one of the problems we often have in our Christian lives. We often, you know, will have a planning meeting and at the beginning we'll pray and we'll say, God, help our plans be your plans. And then we will have a meeting for two hours and totally forget that we prayed, God, let your plans, let your plans be our plans. Sometimes we don't even do that. Sometimes we just go ahead and plan and then we say, God, we got a plan, please bless it. And I always wonder what God thinks when we say those things. Is he just chuckling up there? <laughs> Is he like shaking his head? <laughs> like, no, I'm not blessing that bad plan, right? Nope. But we do this often, we assume we assume that our plan is God's plan because, you know, we assume it because, it, you know, a lot of times it's a good thing. We, we want a good thing. We're, we're trying to do a good thing. We're trying to help people. We're trying to, you know, you know, provide. We're trying to do all these things. And we assume that because of that, it must be God's plan because we have the right objective. Sometimes we don't even assume it's God's plan. In this case, he's, the people aren't even considering God. They're totally ignoring him. They're just 
going. So whether you ignore him completely or whether you just at the end say, okay, God, will you bless my plan? Either way, it's assuming, it's presuming. James is saying, no, it's not, it's not the way you do it. It's not the way you plan. And then he gives us a really, like for us, like a real world example. He gives us something that we can all relate to. Think if I was preaching this sermon in like July of 2019. And if I told you, you guys all have plans for 2020, don't you? I'm going to tell you, none of those plans are going to happen. None of them. You'd be like, okay, crazy guy, whatever. It's cute, interesting, right? Well, how many of you are doing in 2020 what you thought you were going to be doing in 2020? The way you thought you were going to be doing it? We didn't even know what a pandemic was. We didn't know what coronavirus, COVID-19, none of, none of this was. You never ever in your life uttered the words social distancing. You never thought in 2019 you would ever come to church wearing a mask. Some of you never thought you could ever actually worship or study the Bible online. You thought that's not possible. The only way you can worship God is in a pew, in a church building, you know, on Sunday morning. You don't even know what 2020 will bring. What makes you think you know what 2021 will bring? Or 2022? Still got a plan. Still got to live. But you don't do that assuming you know everything that lies ahead. Today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. You see, that's why part of what discipleship is and the part of the reason we need to be disciples and we need to not just have a true faith, we have to have a deep faith. It's because when we have a deep faith, then what's instilled in us, what's instilled in us are these, these core values of who God is and what God wants us to be. And if that's the case, then the one thing we can know for sure is that no matter what 2020 brings, the rest of 2020 brings, no matter what 2021 brings, if we have those core values inside of us because we have a deep faith, a true deep faith, here's what we know. We'll still be walking with the Lord. We know our church will still be the church held together by his spirit. We know that no matter what the world looks like in 2021, 2022, we will still seek to serve God, serve others, love others, spread the gospel, no matter what the situation. That's what we know. 
And you know what's so awesome is that we have a history. If we're true believers in Jesus Christ, we have a history of Christians who've got that. They got true faith, they got deep faith. And it carried them through things way worse than this. If you ever want to think like, well, you know, the rest of the church doesn't really know how hard it is to be a Christian in America in 2020. If you ever think that, you are reflecting deep stupidity and ignorance. I'm sorry, I probably soft-selled that a bit. Understand, in terms of comfort, in terms of freedom, we've never been in a better time than this. Those people in the first, you go back and read the history of the church in the first three centuries, how deadly it was to be a Christian. And yet, Christianity kept growing. We live in a time when it's easy to be a Christian and Christianity is declining in the West. Christianity is only growing in the world because it's growing in the third world. Because it's growing in countries where people are persecuted. But in the United States, evangelical Christianity has been on a precipitous decline. And we sit and whine about how hard it is to be a Christian today. Kind of a sad thing. But if we look back at our past and we see that if we have that faith, it'll carry us. It'll carry us through whatever it takes to continue to be the church, no matter how much the world changes. That we can know with confidence. If your faith is thin, who knows? If your faith is thin, it'll crack under pressure. If your faith is thin, you'll adapt it and change it to whatever the future is. Oh, but if your faith is deep, and I don't just mean you really, really believe it, I mean you really believe it and you really understand it. If that's the case, your faith will carry you through whatever lies ahead. We need to instill these beliefs in ourselves, not belief in ourselves, but beliefs, these beliefs inside of us. You see, if we have flexibility without a core, we just have this thin faith, ah, we could end up anywhere tomorrow. When somebody else comes and kind of slightly redefines God, redefines what it means to be a Christian, we're first in line. Oh, yeah, good. See that? But see, when we have this, this flexibility, this ability to, to change what we're doing and not be locked into one certain way of doing things, when we have a flexibility that's centered on Christ, we know wherever he leads us, no matter how much we have to change, we'll still be centered on Christ. And we'll still have a 
true faith. This is the way the church can be faithful to these eternal ancient words of truth. We can be faithful to the truth of who God is and who Jesus is in an ever-changing world. I hope, in case you've missed it, that if COVID-19 hasn't taught you anything, I hope it's taught you this. This building is not the church. 10 o'clock on Sunday morning is not the church. Wednesday night is not the church. You name whatever you think the church is, that's not it. That all of these things we've locked into and said, this is the church, and we, we fought for and we defended, and if anybody dared change them, we would get so mad. And now we're being forced to change them. We're being forced to change them. And then we realize, like, you know what? We can still be the church. Oh, we still got to get together. We still got to find a way to be in God's word. We still got to find a way to be discipled and to encourage and to minister and to do all those things. But all those things that I thought was the church, all those traditions, all those programs, they're good. I love them. But they're not the church. He says, what is your life? For you are a mist. A mist that appears for a little time and vanishes. See, the other point he's trying to make is that the faithful don't trust in the temporary things of this world. See, we, we change and we should change. Christians have always changed. They've always adapted. They've always held on to the truth, but they've always adapted. Otherwise, why aren't we speaking Aramaic or Greek? Right? We've, we've always changed. Oh, but that's just language. Why aren't we singing the same songs that were sung in the first century? I don't know. Why aren't you all standing and I'm sitting down? Because that's, that's how they used to teach. Why are we in a building and not in somebody's house? Right? We've always changed. We've always adapted. But we don't compromise the truth. But you see, we don't trust in the temporary things in the world. See, the mistake we would make is to say like, okay, we need to, this, by the way, it's the phrase I hate. You can say it to me and I will pretend not to hate it, but I will hate it. It's the phrase new normal. Okay? You're, if you think like this is the new normal, and you go, okay, we got to do church like this. And now this is the way to do it for the next 10 years? No. Because it's not going to be like this for the next 10 years. If we do that, we're just repeating the same problems that, that we're just now kind of breaking free from. We're just creating new things that are going to define what church is. These things are going to change. And James is saying, you know, he's, and he's not saying anything that's uniquely to the Bible. He's saying, look, you know, you're like a mist. 
Your life is like a mist. He's talking both about the, the temporariness and the fragility of life. It's like footprints. You walk on the beach and you have your footprints and then the waves come. Your footprints are gone. You know, we even think about things that are more permanent. I sometimes ask the question, you know, because in, in, our, in our culture, like we celebrate, you know, you know actors, actresses, athletes, right? That's, that's, and, and so we, we're like, oh, yeah, you know, there's LeBron James and, you know, there's all these other people that we talk about. And I always ask this question. I ask the question, who was gladiator of the year in the year 37 BC, AD? Anybody know? But at the time, he was the greatest. Everybody, you don't even know who he is. How many years before we know who, people no longer know who LeBron James is? It's funny. We, 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 we want to build our legacy. You know, I've, it's, it's one of those depressing but revealing things about when they find cemeteries, when they find cemeteries that have been, have parking lots put over them. They've even found in, in England where they think like royalty was buried and they built structures on top of their, top of their tombs and they didn't even know they were there. And think about that, we're, there we are, right? We're at the, and we say stuff like, oh, this is their eternal resting place. Oh, this is, you know, where they're going to be forever. A few hundred years, sometimes not even that. It's gone. The thing we think is our legacy, it's gone. And if you happen to be famous enough and more powerful enough, then, you know, you'll have a legacy. 2,000 years ago, they'll dig you up and they'll put you in a museum. There your mummy will be for everybody to look at. We build our legacy. We try to build our legacy on things that are temporary. I mean, look at how many people have, have you know, dedicated, you know, built these statues. And there's like, oh, these statues will, will forever be a reminder of, you know, these people. And people are tearing them down. How many people think, you know, think like, you know, I'm, I'm giving to this university and they're going to name this building at this university and that's my legacy. University is not going to be around. We fool ourselves into thinking things, things last. And James is saying, no. Don't trust in the temporary things of this world. And by the way, he's not just saying, don't trust in them because things are going well. There's another side to that too. There's people that just assume that the worst things in this world are also always gonna be here. That the worst things about life are always gonna be here. And they spend their whole lives worrying. You just have a brief time on this earth and you're going to spend it all worrying? You're going to spend it all being negative? 
You're going to spend it all in fear? Angry? Really? Hmm. James is reminding us this world is temporary. Your life is temporary. What are you investing it in? He says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, your boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And he's giving us the, the positive. He's saying the faithful trust in God and they accept his will. There's a lot of people who say, yeah, yeah, I trust in God, but not so sure about his plan. Not, sure, so, not so sure about his will. No, the faithful trust in God and his will. Arrogance. Arrogance is, again, it's either this feeling of, of knowing God's will and going in the other direction or assuming your will is God's will or just ignoring it altogether. It's bad enough not to know what God's will is. It's worse to know it and then disobey it. But you see, if we really trust in God, then we know, we believe God is eternal. We believe God is truth. We believe his plan is right. And we understand it's not about simply earthly, temporary success or earthly, temporary things. Again, it's not about earthly success. It's not saying that that's wrong. He's, James isn't saying, everybody, you should be terrible business people. You should fail, fail, fail. You should flunk out of school because then that, that shows you're not trusting in the schools. You're not trusting in, you know, no, he's not saying that. When he brings up this thing about will, he's, he's, he's helping them understand that they shouldn't trust in the wrong things, which is that the world will be a certain way or that they will be a certain way. But it gets us back to this question, and uh, uh, this important question, is that if we're really wondering what his will is and he gives us success, then what we need to ask is, why, God, did you give me earthly success? Earthly success isn't wrong. But thinking that earthly success is your success, as a believer in Christ, that's what makes it wrong. Instead of asking the question, you know, God, why? You know, why would you bless me this way? What do you want me to do with the blessing that you've given to me? Instead of that question, people don't even ask a question at all. Why did you plan earthly success for me? The second problem comes along, it's related. And in chapter five, he says, come now you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Boy, James, he's 
He's pretty hard sometimes. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. It's interesting because there is some scholarly debate over who's James talking to? But it's pretty clear he's talking to the church. He's talking to people in the church. Remember, James is talking to predominantly Jewish, um, you, know, you know, Jewish church, people who, who grew up Jewish and they still hold on to the Jewish traditions. And he's using language that's very familiar to them. Sounds a lot like the Old Testament prophets. But he is talking to the church. He's not bringing some reason condemnation on rich people in society. And again, it's, this would be something that would be easy for people to kind of separate themselves from and go, well, he's obviously not talking about me because I'm not rich. I'm not wealthy. Well, that's really not his point. He certainly is talking about the misuse of wealth and really not asking the question, why did you plan this earthly success for me? But he's talking to all of us because ultimately this comes down to trust. And he's saying, you know, all this stuff from verse 13 of chapter 4, all of that, not trusting in God, trusting in yourself, assuming things about this life and about this world. He says, if you don't trust in God, you will misuse your success or you will misuse your wealth or you will misuse your life. See, the picture, I struggled with this picture when I was younger and trying to understand it because it didn't really make sense in the world. I mean, I mean, I'd been to some rich people's homes and their stuff looked like it wasn't corroding, it looked okay, you know? But I think when we take this into context, what James is saying, he's not saying after you die, you can't take it with you. He's not saying, you know, you, you know after you, you know, when you get to the end of your life, you're gonna have all this stuff that's stored up and it's just temporary. I don't think that's his point at all. If you remember some of his earlier examples, he had written about how do you treat the poor people who come to your church? How do you treat the people in need? And I think what James is trying to say here and why the rich need to repent, he's saying, you have a brother or sister who's starving to death while you have food that's rotting in your house. You have a brother or sister that, that cannot, doesn't have a place to live. And you've got financial resources that are just sitting there and they're going to just rot. He's, he's saying the condemnation is not because you accumulated wealth. 
The condemnation is you were given wealth, you assumed you accumulated it, you didn't really believe God blessed you with it, and because you didn't believe that, you didn't think, okay, God, now how do I use it? Because James told you how to use it. The Bible tells us how to use it. There's people in need, and you could meet the need, but you didn't. You see, this is why it doesn't just apply to rich people. It applies to all of us. The three things, you know, somebody said better than I, that we all have. We have time, we have talent, and we have treasure. And some of us have more of one of the T's than the other. But we all have those three things. How many people in the church go undiscipled because you have an abundance of time that you're not willing to give. How many people aren't going to be reached because you have the ability, you have the talent to share the gospel and you're not willing to share? See, we could just talk about treasure. We could just talk about the rich and then we, most of us, maybe all of us could sit back because you know what one person wants to find rich to mean is rich is anybody who has one more dollar than you do. So in other words, you're never rich, but anybody with one more dollar is. So we can, we can look at that rich, well, you know, we're not rich. So that's not us. But we have an, we have an abundance of time we have an abundance of talent. We have an abundance of treasure. And what's happening? What are we using it on? Are there people in need that could use your time, that could use your talent, and you're just sitting on it? That's why it's not just for the rich. He uses that really stark language, I think, to get everybody's attention. To make people think like, oh, it's not about me. And then to realize, wait, maybe it is about me. You see, he, he talked about before like the needy brother and just saying to them, hey, you know, God bless you. Be warmed and filled. You know, I'll pray for you. He talks about that. And now he's talking about you doing that when you have the ability to help. He's using this stark example. And he's not saying live with nothing. He's not saying become a monk. He's not saying, you know, live the ascetic life. But he is saying this. He's saying if you have true faith, and Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Lord of all. And by Lord of all, he's not just Lord of part or some or most. If we just talk about time, for example, he's Lord of every second, every moment. We don't get to say, like, God, you know, I served you faithfully, so now I'm... I'm 
taking a break. I'm retiring. No. I mean, I, I might change my mind when I get older. But I'm the kind of guy, I don't want to retire. I, I want, if I'm here at this church, whenever that day happens when I die, I'm cool with them finding me at my desk. I'm okay with that. Because to me, it's like, this isn't my life. I'm not dreaming about the time when I have nothing to do but go golf every day or, you know, just, you know, do all the things my wife wants me to do to fix the house or whatever. And like, I'm not looking to those days. Every second is his. And the question is that we need to ask, what he's trying to say is, that if we're asking if the Lord wills, if we're lining ourselves up with what the Lord wills, then we want to ask God right now, what, what is your purpose right now for my time? What is your purpose right now for my talent? What is your purpose right now for my treasure? You see, some people, it's, it depends. Some people are at the point right now where they're, they're new in their faith or they haven't really developed any their, their abilities and skills. And so you know what they need right now? If they're following God's will right now, they're getting the training. They're getting the equipping. They're getting the deeper understanding, the deeper faith. That's what they're getting right now. Others who have that, it, it could be different. They could be the ones teaching. They could be the ones equipping. They could be the ones discipling so many things that, that can be done with our time and our talent. Where are we? Are we even asking the question or are we assuming that most of our time is ours and we give a little to God? Most of our talent is ours and we give a little to God. And James is connecting here. He's connecting how you value stuff Remember, he started off by talking about the rich and all these moth-eaten garments and you know, gold and silver that's corroded. He's connecting how you value material things with how you value people. And ultimately, he's, he's connecting how you value people to how you value God. And if you have true faith, and you have the right understanding of who God is, and you value him, you will value people correctly. If you trust in God, if you trust that he is Lord of all, you will value people correctly. And once you get God and people right, the stuff will take care of itself. The time, talent, and treasure will take care of itself. So here's wisdom. Wisdom is know that God owns your life. He owns your possessions. And he gave them to you for his purposes. Second piece of wisdom. Do not live for today or tomorrow, but live for eternity. And the last. Trust in God, understand his will, 
accept it, and follow it. When we do this, we as individual Christians, we as a church, we will be faithful no matter how the world changes.